This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE Intellinews. Russia is famous for producing oil and gas, but in more recent years, it started to go up the value-added scale and is producing more and more petrochemicals. I just spent the last few days in Siberia, Tobolsk, where Sibor is upgrading its plant and adding a new massive unit. The $9 billion Zapsib plant will essentially take gases that used to be flamed as byproducts from oil and gas production and turn them into polymers. Once fully operational, Zapsib should more than treble the plant's output and double the company's revenue, and they're thinking about doing an IPO sometime next year, maybe. I sat down with Dmitry Konov, who's the CEO of Sibor, to talk about his plans and how the business is progressing. So, Dmitry, very nice to meet. Um, and as I say, I just spent two days at your facility out in uh, Siberia, where you're building an extension, Zasib, to the existing petrochemical plants that's going to treble your production and double your revenues starting from 2020. Something so it's like not that? necessarily doubling the revenues. It's actually, if you, if you look at the uh, the industrial logic of this facility, it's it's taken out some of the products which were selling to the markets, namely uh, liquefied petroleum gas, and we start processing them into uh, into different types of polymers. Right. So that basically takes its uh, out a part of our revenues and uh, get some additional revenues, but still it's, it's clearly not doubling. Okay, <laughs> but it's a serious project. I mean, how much is being invested into the, the new um, facility altogether? Yeah, the, the, the total uh, CapEx budget for this project is about $9 billion. It's slightly less than we uh, initially budgeted, and we're also moving uh, uh, a, a bit faster now on the execution scale. Uh, so far, uh, we invested something around 6.5 billion, and we will uh, come to mechanical completion of that plant by uh, second quarter next year. And the financing for the capex, 70% uh, of that's already in place. Is that right? Uh, that's right. We we still have uh, uh, undrawn ECA lines, uh, which we will take out to, to finance it and still... Sorry, Expo Credit Agency. Yes, right. And we do have uh, so our operational cash flow uh, and if you look at our financials, the uh, last 12 months uh, EBITDA of Sibur, as of the end of the third quarter was uh, about $3.2 billion. Zapsip is our largest project. Uh, our cash flow is roughly 85% of our, of our EBITDA. Uh, so we have enough operational cash flow also to, to finance our expansion. The um, the point of this plant, because um, you, you do three main things, uh, as I understand it. There's there's the polymers like polyethylene, uh, polypropylene, and then there's the um, the the gas. Uh, you, you take the gases that come off in association with oil drilling and with gas production. It's, it's kind of. If you look backwards on our value chain, uh, what we essentially do as a company, we uh, purchase byproducts of oil and gas production in, in the form of associated petroleum gas from oil companies and natural gas liquids from gas companies. 
and we uh, collect them from the different site production sites of the of the oil and gas companies. Mm -hmm. uh, bring them most of it uh, into one pipeline uh, or into one point system. It's it's about two and a half thousand kilometers of pipelines. And that's pipeline system you built yourself. Yes, uh, it's it's natural gas liquid pipeline. So it's neither gas nor oil. It's specific, it's specific hydrocarbon fractions, which is our fit And this is gases that the oil companies, the gas companies themselves can't use, it's not their primary product, it's a sort uh, of... Well, if you look at Apigen, uh, it's produced by oil companies, it's a byproduct of oil production. So essentially you take uh, oil out of the ground, oil companies use it, and APG comes out of the ground as a byproduct, and it's either flared or pumped down uh, into reservoir to support pressure, or used uh, or sold to us, and we uh, we process it. When we process APG, we take out dry gas, which is essentially methane and equivalent to natural gas, and we sell it. And we keep this natural gas liquids, which is propane, butane, isobutane, zopentane, and other fractions between gas and oil, between light and heavy, in the middle of the hydrocarbon ridge. So we keep this, uh, these fractions called angels, we keep these fractions and feed this pipeline. On the other hand, we have gas companies as our partners, and these, the, uh, a gas company produces gas, and in the gas they have uh, also lighter and heavier hydrocarbons. The heavier hydrocarbons is condensate, which is equivalent to light oil. They take it away and they sell it as condensate. They clearly take uh, gas itself in the methane and they market it and they still have this uh, natural gas liquids as a middle part. So they take away this middle part and they sell it to us. And we still feed it into the same pipeline system. So we take these two NGL streams from processing APG and purchasing NGL from, uh, from gas companies, feed them into one pipeline system, bring them to Taborsk. And in Taborsk we, uh, we fractionate them, which means we uh, cut this bundled fractions into individual high purity fractions and then use them as, as either a petrochemical feedstock or part of it we still sell as energy. Okay, and the, the, the point of the new plant is of, of the three different uh, business lines you have, the polymers is the most profitable, the, the margin, the EBITDA margin on those are 40% as opposed to the, the gases that you, you can clean, which is 20%. I would say gases are roughly well, what we call midstream, this business of uh, purchasing uh, NGLs and APG and selling liquefied petroleum gas. This is midstream business. Uh, this midstream business has roughly the same margin as uh, uh, as uh, polymers, olefins and polyolefins. We have the third business line which is elastomers, plastics, elastomers and intermediaries. And that, yeah, yeah. and that one has the uh, low margin of let's say like 20 to 25 percent. But the point of the, the new plant is that you're, you're taking the low margin products and then using that, instead of selling it, using it as feedstock in order uh, to well, make the high margin product. Yes, yes and no. Uh, it, we, we take products from, uh, from midstream and we use them as feedstock for olefins and polyolefins. And both midstream and olefins and polyolefins are about 40% of the margin businesses. But it's, it's not that we take away this 40% margin from, from products from one and we uh, use them in, in the other segment. We, uh, it's actually adding up 
uh, or add on top of that margin, we add another margin. Mm -hmm. Because basically, we still uh, uh, let's think of it as um, like this: you, uh, we have uh, liquefied petroleum gas (LPG). For example, if you have a lighter, the gas inside is is LPG. Right. So it's basically it's used as energy in this in this example. We we purchase energy from gas companies. We transport them. We fractionate them. We sell them as as the gas and lighter, and we get this forty percent margin. Mm -hmm. uh, and alternatively, uh, but uh, in order to sell it as a gas and lighter, we have to ship it to to send it by rail to our consumers in. I don't know, in Rotterdam. And it's still a 40% margin. Uh, we, we have a lot of this LPG to sell, and when we start this plant, uh, we take roughly half of this LPG which we sell and start selling it not to the lighter producing uh, in Rotterdam, but to our petrochemical plant in Taborsk. And uh, that plant will also learn this 40% plus EBITDA. So it's it's not really uh, taking away a lower margin product and adding up uh, a, a higher margin product, but adding another layer of margin on top of this uh, of, of the margin in uh, in our midstream business. And your track record for building these things, you've got 22 facilities altogether. It says in the presentation that nearly you know, the majority of them come in on time and at or under budget. Yeah, most of this project which you uh, which you are referring to, they are uh, they are upgrades of the or modernization. Of, so it's, it's mostly brownfields. So Zapsi in a sense is uh, is a greenfield because although it's adjusting to existing site, it's a completely new construction. So we built all the uh, utilities of sites and infrastructure from. From scratch, uh, it's it's been nothing there on that site before we started building. But still, most of the projects we are referring to is the project of this brown brownfield projects on the existing site, and that's that's actually why I mentioned that most of our sites have been deeply modernized in the last decade. Okay, talking about the market, um, what share of this, the production goes to exports? It's about half, isn't it? At the moment, it's about thirty-two. 30-32%. And your main customers are in Europe and Asia, but the Asian market is the really dynamic one, is that right? Uh, at the moment, most of our customers outside Russia are in, in Europe. And that, that that's basically two major product groups for us. That's uh, Elastomers, synthetic rubbers, where we supply to uh, most of European time manufacturers. and. Uh, our midstream business, which sells uh, LPG to European petrochemical producers. Uh, Asia is about 5% of our sales at the moment. Because for most of the products we produce, we find the better home, higher margin uh, consumption in either in Europe, first in Russia, uh, in the former Soviet Union, or in, uh, in, in Europe. That's a, just a, from a logistical point of view, it's a better location for us. But the plan is, uh, the presentation again talks about that the prospective market is Asia, I mean the growth there, uh, as that market develops you have growing middle class, you have growing consumption and then all of the plastics, packaging, what have you, the demand has been running at whatever is just below 5% outpacing GDP growth and is going to continue to do that. 
all, all, although that all, all of that is right, uh, although it is slightly we believe at a slightly lower rate than it's been his, historically than historically. So uh, historically, it's been like one and a half, 1.5 times a global GDP. We believe it will slow down to 1.2, 1.3, but we still believe it will be uh, above GDP for for some years to come at least. And that that will be mostly driven by Asia. In, in that sense, you're right. But if you still look at the at the global production, it's 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 strongly diversified. So you uh, for the global consumption of polymer, uh, polymers. Uh, of about 300 uh, million tons a year, you would have hundreds of, uh, of production sites producing these volumes, uh, ranging from maybe 100,000 tons a year to 1.5 million tons a year. And that's a very diversified in, in terms of geographies. And it's also uh, pretty much diversified in terms of the feedstock it uses. Mm -hmm. So in many cases you would have a refinery and part of the refining products will go as a feedstock for petrochemicals, so it's adjusted petrochemical to refineries. Uh, sometimes you would have, and it, it, it's in most cases it's, it's in the uh, on, on the consumption side, so it, it will be where the consumption is. In many cases you would have, like Gulf countries, you will have uh, oil and gas production uh, byproducts of oil and gas production, uh, which are locally. Converted into petrochemicals and then petrochemicals are exported. Uh, in some cases, you would have uh, coal producers who use coal technology to, uh, well, technology of converting coal into monomers and then into polymers, um, and that would clearly depend on where the the, uh, the coal is, and that's that's been like the mostly developed in China in the last years. So it's, it really depends on the on the very different factors. You, you to develop the Asian business, you, you have various uh, joint ventures. There's Sinopec, the, the Chinese uh, petrochemical company, bought ten percent along with the Silk Road Fund in Cebu, and you have a synthetic rubber joint venture with them, where you provided the technology, the facility for the rubber, and then they provide the sales and marketing in Asia, and a very similar deal with uh, with India. Is that not right? I think it's. It, it, this Krasnoyarsk, uh, Krasnoyarsk rubber plant, which is our joint with Sinopec, uh, to some extent is reversed to what we have in India. Uh, in uh, in Krasnoyarsk, Sinopec uh, owns 25% stake. We're responsible for production, they're responsible for marketing. And most of that, that particular product goes to the Chinese market, I would say. In India, uh, it's our technology applied to the joint, sold to the joint venture. Uh, we are minority shareholders in this joint venture, Reliance is the majority shareholder. We are, uh, this, this plant, uh, in Butil Rub. Uh, Sorry, that's in, 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 in India. Yeah. Uh, the plant is built on the Jamnagar site, which is the world's largest refinery site. And it's targeting Indian consumption. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really, uh, what we find in India is supply of feedstock uh, from this refining complex. Uh, growing market, and then we apply our technology and our skills in the project, our and reliant skills in the project execution to make this project successful. But this, um, at the moment, remains a relatively small part of your business, I mean, the overall business. The um, domestic market is also very interesting. I mean, again, here we've had a steady climb of income and rising middle class. 
And again, they're consuming more and more packages, uh, which is a, a main product for this. I mean, how, how do you see the domestic? I mean, the domestic market for you must be very important and outpacing the growth of the European market. Is that not right? Uh, European market is not grown, so it's not that difficult to uh, to outpace the growth of the European market. Russian market has been growing fast in the last in the last decade, uh, mostly because it's as you, as you mentioned started from underconsumption, uh, and we've we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of changes in the consumer behavior in the uh, kind of uh, in the patterns of how the uh, the big retail chains has has changed their, their network. So you come from the kind of street markets uh, into uh, into big supermarkets and you have very different uh, demand for packaging in, in this type of trade, in this type of retail facilities. And that has uh, uh, has led to the significant growth in, in polymer consumption. Uh, another factor uh, was that uh, Russian petrochemical the industry, uh, us and the uh, other other competitors uh, of ours, has added uh, new capacities to the Russian market. And once you add extra extra resin to the market, mm -hmm. uh, within the pace of the two to three years, converters come in and pick up their production, mm -hmm. which which uh, means that demand starts to grow faster. Mm -hmm. That's that's an interesting uh, twist. But uh, historically, Russia uh, has been importing polymers. Then Russia has saturated its market with the polymers, but still has been uh, importing polymer products. But as we, are, we we've been adding and as we are adding more uh, more capacity here, more converters come to Russia and start producing here. Mm. It's like you uh, you didn't have a resin uh, and you imported both the resin and the diapers. Then you produce more resin, you stop importing resin and you start exporting resin, but you still import diapers. And the next stage, converters come and then you start exporting diapers. Right. So that's, that's how more or less this industry develops. And you see the, um, the market continuing to grow. Um, what, what do you have in the way of competition uh, here domestically? Because I, I think, again, you're in kind of a unique position that you sit where you, you do in West Siberia. You have all of the oil and gas companies feeding you, but then the barriers for entry for competition are quite high. We're probably in the unique position uh, now, uh, which was not true uh, a decade ago, and uh, I would not uh, I would not say that we have this unique position because we have access to feedstock. In this country, most of players could have access for feedstock in different locations because this country is so so big and hydrocarbons and you have supply of feedstock almost everywhere where the hydrocarbons are produced. So the, 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 the main thing which I believe has uh, differentiated us from the competition and made us successful uh, was our ability to execute big projects, large projects. And you, if you look at the uh, number of the projects which were announced in Russia in the uh, last 10 years, uh, Probably not more than 20% of them has been finalized and uh, brought to completion, and most of that uh, was was the project by Sibur. Which um, talking about your shareholders, then um, Michelson is uh, one of the largest shareholders, and of course he's well known for for Novatech. But then that company also has they they just completed the LNG 
plant in the north, um, which was brought in again under budget ahead of time. It seems that you know there's this whole sector of the economy which is dealing with these um, more sophisticated uh, hydrocarbon products, be it LNG or in your case petrochemicals. <coughs> that's actually building up a very good track record of of successes here in, in terms of completing so differentially you would have companies who made it successful and some companies who had not been that successful so it's really uh, it's really company by company rather than sector by sector mm -hmm. what, what is his um, role I mean uh, the Nicholson uh, in, in Sibor yeah he's he's the largest shareholder uh, shareholder he's the chairman of the board he's uh, kind of mode of operations in Sibor is pretty different from uh, from his mode of operations in Novatech. In Novatech, he's the founder, the CEO, and he's still the the main person who leads the development of uh, of uh, Novatech. In in Sibur, he is a financial investor, and he uh, I think he's he specifically uh, he controls himself to play a different role from what he plays in Novatech. So yeah, and it's sometimes it's it's been not easy, but uh, I believe he he's been extremely efficient in it. So, so I am the chairman of the board. I am the financial investor in Cibor. Mm -hmm. So I do control major uh, major decisions by my authorities as 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 the board. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's it's you the management. I'll change the management if you don't uh, don't make it successful. But you are the management. Mm -hmm. I am the shareholder. In Novatech, he is the management. Mm -hmm. His name is politicized, though, with all this geopolitical tension, and uh, he himself is sanctioned, although Sibor himself is not. Mm, uh, Michelson is not sanctioned. Isn't he? But does that cause a problem? I mean, uh, Timchenko is also uh, a shareholder in Sibor, and he is sanctioned. I mean, is this an issue for the company? Your, your shareholders are well, sort it, of... Well, it, it, added, up, uh, it uh, added a lot of a lot of paperwork and the compliance work to us uh, back in 2014 when Mr. Timchenko was sanctioned, and he was a 32% shareholder at that time. Uh, so basically, uh, we we had to come to uh, to the banks, to the clients, and uh, make another effort to explain them our shareholder structure and that the sanctioned shareholders are uh, well below 50% of the total shareholder in Cebu, uh, which uh, means that the company is not affected by by them being the shareholders. Does that affect your ability to raise finances? I mean, does it add a premium to when you go into the market? Uh, in terms, in terms of premium, I, I would not, I would not say so. Uh, uh, initially, in 2014, I would say uh, because of the, uh, you know, the sanctions were introduced in 2014 for the for the first time, and there was a lot of um, say unclarity of how it would work. I'd say we we postponed one issue of uh, of that uh, and we still raised it, raised it later but back in 2014 there was a round of discussions of how it would work how we should finance and one of the potential deals we, we didn't execute we decided not to go for it uh, until it becomes clear but since then it's been working reasonably well and in the let's say objective way so I, I would say uh, sanctions probably added uh, some premium to, to the Russian risk but not to the company risk in this respect. Because you recently issued a um, $500 million euro bond a few months ago, which you used to refinance existing debt, did you know? Uh, not necessarily. We just, to, to be honest, we wanted to keep our presence in the public markets, and we did not 
really uh, need this uh, 500 million dollars and the previous issuance was actually <clears throat> 1 billion dollars so we, we we decided to we made the decision to uh, to remain in the public markets with with this euro bond uh, and we reasonably successfully issued it, it was early 2018 or late 2017 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the previous issue no, no the, the the second year Early 2018. Have you got any more borrowing plans? I mean, for public issues bonds. So to, to, to be honest, we uh, we don't feel we need any at the moment. So we're basically we're at the very end of the uh, of Zapsip, which is our largest investment. Uh, we don't have uh, that aggressive investment planned uh, beyond Zapsip. So we still we, we still do have growth, but it's the, the size of the investment is not that big as for Zapsip. We are roughly three billion, uh, three billion EBITDA company, which means we are probably two point something, two, two plus billion to be conservative uh, operational cash flow, and we don't have uh, investment of that size for the, for the next couple of years at least, uh, and we are one point one point six times uh, debt to EBITDA uh, at the end of nine months. And we'll have Zapsip with the additional uh, EBITDA after it's completed and started up. So uh, at the first glance, we don't really need additional finance. Yet there's talk of an IPO, um, which was talked in the summer. It seems to have been delayed somewhat, but um, it's still on the cards. No? It's it's, uh, it's 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 a fantastic thing of how it all develops. We never delayed it because we never uh, we never announced it. <laughs> so we we just can could not delay it. So we 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 started to discuss it with the banks, and we uh, basically uh, we have our shareholder who strongly believe that Cebu should be public one day, and uh, you know. Approaching the completion of Zapsip, we started to discuss whether it makes sense or doesn't make sense to to have to make an IPO. And once we, I, I believe, uh, once we started these discussions, then uh, we were um, immediately acclaimed of you know targeting an IPO in 2018. And then it didn't happen. Uh, you know, pe people started to discuss that we are delaying an IPO. So we we uh, we have these plans and we. Uh, Basically, had these plans uh, since Michelson acquired uh, Cibur in 20, uh, 2010. <coughs> From the very beginning, he he said that Cibur should be public, uh, and then we we kept on growing, and it was ne never uh, the right moment to to go because there was still some growth ahead. Now with Zapsip approaching its completion, it's it's right time to start discussing. So that's that's what we do. We're discussing the possibilities. So yeah, okay. So I can officially say that there's a definite plan to have an IPO. Uh, you know, you can say that I, I, you, you, you can say that you found an evidence, and back in 2011, Michelson said clearly that it would be an IPO one day. Okay, we we can provide you with the quotes. I think. Uh, another tiny issue: this whole story with Wilbur Ross um, that caused a big hoo-ha in the West for him. Anyway, but as far as the company is concerned, he had an investment into some subsidiary logistic firm, and well, he, I think he's Wilbros, uh, whom I never met, to be honest. To be honest, and I don't think anyone from Cibur and Cibur shareholders ever met. He, uh, as as we understand, he had investment in uh, in different companies for many years, and one of his investments was this Navigator Gas, which was actually, as far as we understood, uh, after it became. 
not public, but after after all this, you know, media mess around this issue, we started to to look at, at uh, the papers. It was disclosed when he became its Ministry of uh, of Trade, mm -hmm. so it was a known information for for many months. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it just happened that uh, some of the accounts of Wilbur Ross or of, of Navigator guess were, were uh, mentioned uh, in the in the link with the, this Panama Gate or whatever the, the, the yeah, offshore Panama, council. Panama Papers. Panama Papers. Mm -hmm. So they, they got mentioned there and they started to, to the media started to trace Navigator and then they found that uh, one of the contracts of Navigator guess was a contract with Cebu, mm -hmm. and that was the contract since, since 2011, mm -hmm. way before he became the, uh, the what what he became in the Trump administration, and then Secretary of Trade, Secretary of Trade, and you know, uh, years before uh, any sanctions were imposed in Russia. Mm -hmm. So it was a contract negotiated by management of Cebu with the management of Navigator Gas, and it's about one and a half percent. Of Sibur logistics cost, so it's tiny for us, and it's also uh, reasonably small for navigator. So it's like maybe ten percent of the turnover or, or so. And then uh, they, uh, and then some of the media started to claim that you know now we found the link between the Russian sanctioned oligarchs and the U.S. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State, Secretary of Trade, Secretary of Trade, and it's a clear bribery by the uh, by the sanctioned oligarchs to to the Trump administration for whatever reasons, and it's really part of the uh, of the Russian gate and so on and so on. It's getting a would you say it's getting a bit hysterical? I mean, at the same time, if you look at it in pure business terms, then what you're doing makes a lot of sense, adding value, increasing margins. But on the other hand, the uh, the atmosphere has become very toxic and people are leaping on every little thing they can in order to make uh, links to Trump or, or whatever it is, links to Putin or, or whatever. Uh, how, how do you... What, what, what can we do? Just, it just happens we keep on walking. Well, um, the other one, uh, Shmalov, the so-called Putin uh, son-in-law. Um, which, which, which is also a very interesting thing, that there has been no evidence that he was married but now he's he's claimed by everyone as divorced with the Putin daughter. We discussed this yesterday. Yeah, I heard that you weren't invited to the wedding. You didn't go to the wedding, but there there is no wedding, as far as you just don't know that. I don't know. But he he's on the management board, isn't he? He is. So I know the gentleman pretty well. He works. He's been with us since two thousand eight. Uh, he's been a reasonable part of the management team in his uh, in his specific functions. And uh, and he's been reasonably effective on it. He tried his individual kind of investment career uh, after one moment, which was, as I understand, was not extremely successful. So he's still back to us. He's back to us uh, on the management board position. But as I said, he's been with us since 2008, which is 10 years away. 10 years. Because it does look, I mean, as you say, he wasn't, uh, I mean, you have high quality people and the presentation goes through that most of the people on the board are um, 10 years in the company and they're all very experienced and have come from, you know, prestigious and 
blue chip backgrounds. And Shamalov does in that sense stand out in so much as he hasn't had a sparkling career, he's younger, um, it's not so clear why he was on the board. He joined us in 2008, uh, not immediately the board position, uh, and he was uh, starting up the GR function. The GR? GR oh, government relations. Government relations, which didn't exist at Cibor at that moment. And he joined us from the uh, from, from the government, basically. And of course, in Russia, that's an important role, um, the government. Uh... Yes and no. So I, it's, it, it's it's always important to have uh, good relations, but uh, it's it's not that you know, it's uh, it, it's important to have an opportunity to uh, to voice yourself, basically to explain yourself. Uh, but it, in my uh, in my uh, belief, it cannot be the only differentiating factor for the company, and it can be not the major success factor. It's an important factor in Russia, as as I believe in many countries. So you have a lot of regulation about uh, around every industry. Uh, petrochemicals is a hazardous uh, production. Uh, it's a it's a technology driven. Uh, sophisticated industry, so you do have a lot of regulation about the industry itself, about the products, about applications, and building the dialogue around that is is pretty pretty important. So back back to uh, to Shamalov, he joined the company in 2008, started up JAR function, and then his responsibilities expanded to some other functions which are adjusting to to JAR, like legal, because he also has a legal background and so on. And that uh, and NPR also. Uh, so that that was basically his area of responsibility for some years. Well, with PR, he certainly got you a lot of press. <laughs> I think. Last question about the Chinese. Um, that this is the new direction. This pivot towards the east um, with the. Bad relations, particularly with the states, and lukewarm relations with Europe. That Russia future seems to be increasingly tied with China, and the Chinese themselves um, see this, and they have notably gone from making their infrastructure investments, which they've done with the New Silk Road, the, 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 the Bridge and Road project, um, to making equity investments and minority equity investments, which they've done on their own, which they've done in partnership with the RDIF, with Kirill Dmitriev. Um, however, people say that the Chinese-Russian partnership is not a natural friendship, it's a sort of convenience of marriage, but at the same time, you know, the bulk of Russia's border is with China, and the two economies are the synergy between them, because Russia has all the raw materials, but big population, but doesn't compare to China's, whereas China has a massive population, but none of the raw materials. So, on economic terms, this makes sense, but how, how do you see that, you know, the change in the world, it seems the economic center of gravity is shifted east and your company, given the location, geographic, is perfectly placed to benefit from that. Do you see it in those terms, or is it a global market? It's, it's, it's too global for me. It's, it's, well, basically, um, uh, we have strong relationship with, with Chinese at the moment, uh, them being our twenty percent shareholders, but if you actually, but if you, uh, but if you actually look at the history, it's it's not been that uh, there was a pivot to the east 
and then uh, that's when we started our uh, cooperation with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. Because if you look, you look back, the, this pivot to the east is uh, in, in your in your story is something which happened after 2014. Uh, when the Russia-US relations got completely deteriorated and the relations with Europe became not that not that good uh, either. Uh, our first joint venture with China was 2011 and 2012. Uh, and that was uh, this joint venture in Krasnoyarsk, which you mentioned before. And we actually started talking about uh, having either an we started an, uh, developing another uh, project in China based on our technology, which we developed to the, uh, which we developed. Then we froze it for some time because of the market condition, and we, we are defrozen it now. Uh, and uh, Sunpec started to talk about some investment into Cebu back in 2013, uh, which which was before the sanctions, and they completed this, uh, this discussion with the deal, which was 2015. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, and uh, if you look at our portfolio of assets and portfolio of projects, we uh, we now have a project which is basically sitting on the Chinese border, which we're this we're developing this project. Called is this the Amur? Uh, yeah, that's that's Amur, but uh, it's not really driven by politics. It's driven by the fact that Gazprom has signed a deal to supply gas, which is economically viable deal for both for Chinese and and Gazprom, and because of that we have potential feedstock for, for our production. But, uh, because if they, uh, if Gazprom had not developed the, that project... Uh, this is the power of Siberia. Power of power. Siberia and Tamur gas processing plant. If they had not developed that, we would not have uh, feedstock for us. And there would be no project uh, uh, of Sibur in, in the Russian Far East. So it's really, uh, it's not about politics, but rather about how the Russian energy industry, industry develops. So once, once we have a, a ability, availability of the feedstock and the ability to build a plant there, we'd be happy to do that. And uh, it's, it's not really driven by politics, it's driven by, by the many other factors, for us at least. Thank you very much for taking the time. I wish you every success with your business. Thank it's you. A pleasure.